0: We thank you, Lord, that you are a God who not only has accomplished uh, the gospel, uh, Lord, you have uh, also been joyful and willing to reveal your, yourself to us through the pages of your word. And Lord, you command us and you instruct us to study your word, to allow it to, to shape and fashion us to become more and more like your son, Jesus Christ. And so this morning, as we as we pause and we place ourselves, Lord, under Uh, your truth. We ask that you would have freedom to do what you need to do uh, to shape us and to fashion us according to um, your son, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, would you do that? Would you allow me to be your messenger, uh, Lord, to faithfully proclaim your truth and that your will will be done this morning in your precious holy name? Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. In 1988, the Grammy Award for Song of the Year was sung by Bobby McFerrin. Some of you probably already know what the song is. In this song, he relates a number of difficult circumstances that people might find themselves in, and he urges them to not worry, but be happy. You've got no place to lay your head because someone's come and taking your bed, how are you to respond? Don't worry, be happy. The landlord says your rent is late and he may have to litigate. How should you respond? Don't worry, be happy. You don't have cash, you don't have style, you don't have a girl to make you smile. What should you do? Don't worry, be happy. In your life, expect some trouble, he says. When you worry, you make it double. So don't worry. Be happy. That was a catchy and popular tune, and probably right now I run the risk of sharing that with you because you're going to have that tune in your head the rest of this morning. So if I'm boring, I know where you can go, all right? But it was so popular that it reached number one in the charts. Well, about 10 years before that, um, in England... Uh, the Monty Python crew put together a very blasphemous movie called The Life of Brian. And in that was a song that's become really, really popular, in particular in the British Isles. And it's called Always Look on the Bright Side of Life. And it was sung by a bunch of people who have been mistakenly identified as Christians and people who were trying to rebel against the Roman society, all crucified on a hill. And then one of them starts singing, Always look on the bright side of life. It was a direct mockery of Christianity and was poking fun at this perceived attitude that Christians always go around, you know, kind of smiling and happy and joyful, especially when they are facing difficulty. Friends, the question is, is that caricature true? Does it really describe how Christians face times of trial and difficulty? Is that what God calls us to? Does he want us to simply grin and bear through our circumstances, no matter how difficult they are? Are we called to simply be passive and to accept our fates? What is it that God wants us to do when we find ourselves In times of difficult trial, especially when that trial is due to our commitment to Christ, should we just passively accept them with an optimistic attitude? Or is there something deeper? Is there something more that we need to understand, that we need to pay attention to? So what should the Christian's attitude be? when they find themselves in difficult circumstances. And that's what Paul wants to address in this passage of Scripture. To fight, to rejoice in our difficult circumstances, knowing that they serve to advance the gospel. Now friends, rejoicing is not passive, but active. It's born out of our union with Christ. It is the fruit of something God has called us to. Now, one of the themes that Paul is emphasizing throughout this letter to the Philippian church is, to, is for the Philippians to have a different view of life, to view life through a different lens, a Christ-centered lens. He encourages them to have the mind of Christ. He says, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain." He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You see, we're seeking to have the mind of Christ and to live for him. When we're doing that, we will fight in our hearts to wrestle with our thoughts and our desires so that we can rejoice in the difficult circumstances we encounter and that we experience. It's not just a happy-go-lucky, go-ahead, do-whatever-you-want-to-me thing. It's finding ourselves rooted in Christ and recognizing that he is at work through those difficult circumstances. So what Paul expresses in this passage is not to be passive with your joy by saying things like, always look on the bright side of life or don't worry and be happy, it is a rejoicing that is wrestled into place because we are resting in Christ and rooted in his purposes. See, friends, God calls us to do things. He doesn't just call us to receive things. Now, we do. We receive the benefits of grace, the benefits of his kindness, but he also calls us to act. And we have to wrestle our hearts to the place that we're fighting to see the joy in what is happening in our circumstances. Now, just from a purpose of, of structure, I want you to notice that chapter, uh, chapter 1, verses 12 through 26 are really one unit. And we're dividing it into two. But there is somewhat of a top and tail that is taking place. You notice in verse 12, we read, I want you to know, brothers, that when that what happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And then in verse 25, he says, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress or for your advancement, literally, and joy in the faith. So there's this idea of advancement, of progress in the gospel that is driving this passage and the next. And today we want to look at Paul's answer to the question about his imprisonment. So the proposition here is this, rejoice because your difficult circumstances serve to advance the gospel. And this is where we're going to be heading this morning. First of all, we're going to be um, looking at the, the truth revealed, verse 12. Then we're going to look at the truth illustrated, verse 13 through 14, not 24 in your notes. And then the truth applied, verses 15 through 18. Paul is logically unfolding his argument that We should rejoice because our difficult circumstances serve to advance the gospel. Friends, that is no small statement. Let's look then at the truth revealed. This is what he's revealing to the Philippian church. He states it in verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So, what we have here as a backdrop to this verse is the Philippian question. This is a church, friends, that is very personal to the Apostle Paul. He came and preached the gospel. The church was established under his care, and he was knit together with these people. Now, they are, for the most part, a healthy church. There's going to be some things that he addresses in this book. that's going to be a correction. But for the most part, they're a healthy church. They're a model church. And they love Paul so much that they have sent money by the hand of Epaphroditus to help Paul in his imprisonment. And naturally, they're eager to know how he is doing. So when Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, he is responding to their concerns about his imprisonment. Notice that Paul mentions his imprisonment three times in our passage. In verse 13, in verse 14, and in verse 17. My imprisonment, my imprisonment, my imprisonment. This is where he is. This is his circumstance. This is what has happened to Paul, is what he is saying. Now, the Philippian church love Paul. They've been generous to Paul. So it's only natural that, that Paul, um, after beginning his letter with thanksgiving for their ongoing partnership in the gospel and with a prayer for them to abound more and more in love, that he would get to one of these pressing issues, and that is to answer their questions. Paul, how are you doing? We know you're in jail. How are you holding up? Are you discouraged? Uh, Are you you suffering? Um, How is your imprisonment affecting your gospel ministry? We certainly know that if we were in prison, we would be discouraged. Especially, you've been in prison now for almost five years, simply because of a false accusation of doing something against Rome. How are you holding up? And friends, I've asked similar questions to friends that I've had around the world, friends that you know. A number of years back, if you remember, Bolivia was going through some upheaval with their leadership. There were riots taking place in the streets in Santa Cruz where our friends live. And I picked up the phone and I called Matias and I I want to know how the Mojica family is doing. I want to know how the people of the church are doing. And Matias' response is, oh, you know what? We're safe, and people are doing okay, but what's great is that we have a greater opportunity to share the gospel in these circumstances. See, there's a mindset there that is what Paul is getting at, that, that Matthias was, was illustrating for me. And then as I think about what happened in, in Ukraine I want to know how my brothers and sisters in Ukraine are doing when when Russia is invading and, and they're sending bombs and all that kind of stuff. I want to know that people are saved, people that I love. We're happy to hear that people are getting out of the country. We're also happy to hear how the church in Ukraine has been actively and effectively doing ministry to refugees so when we're asked, we're told of the hardships, we're told of the people who have died, we're told of the suffering, we're told of the the hunger and the many refugees, but we're also told of the great blessing God has given his church to see these difficult circumstances as opportunities for gospel witness. So friends, it's not really surprising that the Philippian church is concerned for Paul and praying for Paul, is it? So then we have the the Pauline answer. Now, just remember, in our society, we've really lost the art of writing letters, haven't we? I mean, very few of us actually sit down and write a block letter. You remember what that was? Where am I supposed to put the date? And where does the where does the address go? And we've, we've lost that. art. Why? Because we are an email and a text society now. But back in Paul's day, when you wrote a letter, there was typically a certain structure to it. You began with the greeting. You, you began with the thanksgiving. You began by, by communicating what we heard last week, a, a prayer of, 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 for, for their love that it would abound. And then you get to the place of answering the question, how are you? you doing? Just imagine a freshman college student writing to his mother after a week of being away and he says, Mom, I just want you to know that I'm doing well. I'm making friends, I'm working hard on my studies, I'm staying out of trouble, I've done laundry, I've cleaned behind my ears, I'm brushing my teeth. Everything is going okay. Now I can tell you what's happening at the university, but Mom is more interested in that. And that's what Paul is addressing here. There's this question that he's answering because the Philippian church cares about him. And so there's something he says, I want you to know, and it may come as a surprise to you, and here's what it is, my circumstances. In other words, what has happened to me, my imprisonment has really served to advance the gospel. Now, friends, that's no small Statement. That's actually a shocking statement. The word really can be better translated rather. In other words, Paul is saying, it may surprise you to hear this, but I want you to know that my circumstances, rather than hindering the gospel ministry, have served to advance gospel ministry. You see what Paul is doing here? He's rocking the Philippians' view of the world. As one commentator says, Paul is dropping a theological bomb on them. He's confronting their man-centered attitude toward his difficult circumstances. Now, friends, it's right and natural for the Philippian church to be concerned about his health and well-being. It's right for them to be praying for his deliverance. If you remember back in, in Acts 16, he's in prison, and what is the church doing? They're praying for his deliverance. And what happens? He's delivered. He's at the door knocking. He says, well, "Why don't one let me in?" So it's right. But the Philippian church are now going to learn something new that is going to rock their world. My circumstances, my um, my imprisonment, is now serving to advance the gospel. Now, the word translated advance here is a military metaphor of an army on the march cutting its way through the enemy toward victory. And the people of Philippi, they would understand this metaphor because the the city is named after a very famous Greek leader, Philip of Macedonia, and he developed this tactic of, of, of this... Thing called a shield wall. Now, we typically think of a shield wall as something that happens in the Viking culture. But he developed the shield wall strategy where the shields would come together and it would be like a tank coming at you. And so he conquered much of the Greek territory and it was his famous son, Alexander the Great, that took that military technology and expanded the borders of Greece from Greece in the west all the way over to India in the east. So there's this this picture here that Paul is using to help them understand that my imprisonment is advancing like a, like a, a military campaign the gospel even in these circumstances. So the image here is that Paul's imprisonment, rather than hindering the gospel, has served to advance the war machine of the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ was marching ahead, cutting away at the enemy and gaining ground at at every step, but not in physical ways, but in spiritual ways. The word of God was being preached, Lives were being radically changed. Hearts were turning to Christ in belief. Why? Because of the preaching of the gospel. So friends, this is is the, the first thing that we want to see here because this is Paul's number one priority. It was the preaching of the gospel, the proclamation of the gospel. And Paul's aim here is that the Philippian church would join him to see that any and every situation they may find themselves in is an opportunity to make the proclamation of Jesus Christ their first priority. What situation are you finding yourself in? And are you going to have a mind of Christ perspective on that situation? Look ahead at Philippians to verse 29 and 30. Notice what we see there. We see that the, believer, or the Philippian believers are engaged in the same suffering that Paul was experiencing. So he's not just saying, hey, this is something that's happening for me. He's saying, this is something that's happening for me, and I want you to know this is for you too. Notice verse 29. For it has been granted to you, Philippian church, that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the, what? Same conflict that you saw I had, in other words, they saw him in Philippi suffering, being imprisoned, and now hear that I still have. So they're experiencing the same conflict, the suffering for the sake of Christ. And, 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 and Paul is saying, look, what I'm telling you is even your suffering, even your trial, even the things that you're going through are also advancing the gospel, it's a mindset, it's a perspective, it is what God wants us to see in the midst of what we're going through. So Paul is one of the Philippian believers to have a radically different attitude toward their suffering and conflict. And to see it not as something that was hindering the gospel but the very means by which the gospel is powerfully advancing. Now this is nothing new to us, really. We've, we know it, and I. Just draw your attention, not to turn there, but Genesis 50, Joseph is standing before his brothers, reflecting on all the things that he had gone through, the suffering at their hands, going into Potiphar's house, being in prison for years, and finally being raised up to be the second in command in Egypt, and he looks at them and famously says, you meant it for what? Evil, but God meant it for good, theological bomb. See, it's these kind of theological bombs that we need to to remind ourselves to have a perspective that is in conformity to Christ. Why are you going through what you're going through? Now, in this context, it's more of a trial. It's more of a suffering. And I think it's also right to kind of step back and to say, there could be things you're going through that aren't trials, that are still opportunities for gospel advancement. Or maybe there's good things that are happening And those are opportunities for gospel advancement. The point is, your circumstances serve to advance the gospel. Friends, we need to know that, don't we? Here's the question Paul wants me to ask myself today. Do I see and can I rejoice that my difficult circumstances serve to advance the gospel? Am I looking at life with the mind of Christ through a gospel-centered lens? Friends, this is radical and powerful for every believer, isn't it? To imagine that your trial, your suffering, your difficult circumstance, in fact, every circumstance is the platform that God uses to advance his gospel. It's mind-blowing. And friends, this is a word that we need to hear. We need to hear it again and again because it's so easy to get caught up with our own thinking. And we might find ourselves in difficult circumstances. We might be tempted to look at those circumstances through a cultural selfish lens that is saying, I shouldn't be in this situation. I don't deserve it. And those around you would say the same thing. Or you might say, it's not my fault. And so I need to find someone to blame and focus all my anger and rage on or maybe I'm the victim here and been abused by evil oppressors. That may be true, but as a Christian, you're saying, even if that's true, God has placed me here in this circumstance to serve gospel advancement. Yes, Paul could have expressed his anger at the Jews for making their unjust accusations. He could have allowed bitterness to seep into his heart at Felix and Festus, for not declaring him innocent. He could have turned against God putting him, or for putting him in this situation. But Paul's heart has been shaped and fashioned by Christ, and as such, he has the mind of Christ to be able to see his circumstances, not as hindrances to the gospel, but the very mechanism of gospel advance. Powerful, isn't it, friends? It changes how we view our circumstances. So that's the truth revealed. But now he wants to illustrate this truth. He wants to show us how this is true in his own personal life. And it's going to happen in two ways. An illustration that has to do with unbelievers, we call them pagans, or believers, we call them Christians. And with the pagans, he clarifies, he brings clarity so that they can believe the gospel. Look at verse 13. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. It's become known. The idea there is it's, it's clarified. It's been, it's been revealed. Something has been made clear to the whole imperial guard. Now That's quite a claim, isn't it? Is Paul exaggerating here or is... This is a reasonable assessment of his situation. Well, the Imperial Guard were hand-picked soldiers, uh, men, of course, 10000 in number, all of Italian birth, and they were paid twice as much as any other soldier. And when they left, they had an incredible pension for themselves. And they are the ones who have been assigned to guard Paul. And the history records show that typically what they would do is that if there was a, 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 someone who was in prison, of course, this was house arrest, that person would still have to be chained, and either they had one guard chained to him or there would be two guards chained to him. They were there as guards for Paul, their prisoner, and they would have four-hour shifts 24-7. All right, so that's a lot of guards during the course of one day. And Paul is in prison here for two years, at least. It's a lot of guards. It's a lot of men coming through, all right? In fact, if you would turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, the last two verses in the book of Acts, I want you to to notice what we read there. And and the apostle, uh, especially the apostle Luke, um, records this, and I think helpfully so, to let us... have a a picture and a window of understanding as to the circumstance that Paul was in. It says here, Paul lived there two whole years at his own expense. This is verse 30. Um, Actually, we should read verse 29. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God, and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And here now in Philippians, Paul is saying, I'm not hindered, (laughs) I'm liberated. The gospel isn't restrained, it's liberated. My imprisonment is serving to make this happen. And so now he has these imperial guards that are chained to him. And so it's no small wonder that they were listening to all the conversations that he was having with people that were coming and going, that were helping kind of establish the church. While Paul was in prison, he's writing letters, he's sending people here, there, there's people coming, and he's teaching them, he's training them. All the while, chained to his arms or his legs are two imperial guards. Every four hours. And if we know anything about Paul, here comes a new guard, and Paul's saying, Okay, Lord, (laughs) I've got four hours. What am I going to do? And you can be sure what Paul did along the way. He probably told the story of what happened to him in Jerusalem, or maybe even what happened to him in Philippi, how he was you know, grabbed by a mob and thrown in prison. And later in Thessalonica, the mob came and grabbed him again. And, and he, he points to the fact, this is why I'm, I, I'm, in, I'm in jail here. Yes, it's the Jews who have turned against me, but they've made false accusations. But ultimately, he starts driving toward the real reason that, that is Christ. And he has all this time and opportunity to share the gospel to these imperial guards while they're at work. I guess they didn't have any, you know, HR protocols that were hindering Paul at this point in time, but that's what was going on. You can just imagine it. Now, the question here is this, what became clear? And I want to think of two things that I think became clear to the Imperial Guard. First of all, as I mentioned, he probably went through and talked about his experience uh, of, of being arrested and put on trial and thrown into jail just historically and then ultimately what led him there. And, uh, and ultimately he's saying, look, my, 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 although I was accused of doing things against Rome, it's very clear that I haven't been doing anything against Rome. I'm not in prison because I've done anything against Rome. I'm here because I was for Christ. I'm not against Rome. I'm here because I'm for Christ. And what the Imperial Guard would have understood is that Paul was not an ordinary prisoner. He wasn't imprisoned for crimes against Rome, but he was imprisoned for proclaiming Christ, in particular among the Jews, and the Jews hated him for it. So it's the cause of Paul's imprisonment, first of all, that became clear, his commitment to Christ. Secondly, his attitude while he's in. Now friends it's important we make that distinction because what's his attitude well we're going to find out in verse 18 it's joy but the real what the imperial guard would have seen is that Paul rather than being angry or upset with his unjust five year imprisonment is instead a man filled with joy for Christ literally he is imprisoned in Christ he's imprisoned for Christ but he's imprisoned in, Christ. in other words, there's a difference between the two. Christ is the reason for Paul's imprisonment, but Christ is also the, the satisfaction for Paul in his imprisonment. Paul isn't just grinning and bearing it. He's not just singing songs. don't worry, be happy. No, he is joyful and he's rooted and he's resting in Christ. That's why he says a little bit later, "For me to live is. Christ. So Paul's awareness of Christ's sovereign purposes in his trial and his joyful attitude while in that trial, they were captivating and compelling to any and all who came in contact with him. So the Imperial Guard and many others are seeing that Paul, although imprisoned, is aware that God is advancing his gospel through his suffering. They're hearing the gospel proclaimed, Again and again, they're hearing it applied, and they're seeing it spreading throughout the whole Imperial Guard. In fact, God has established a mechanism for gospel witness in Rome that church growth strategists would not come up with. You can imagine a church growth you know, committee getting together. It's like, okay, so John, we want to we take the gospel to Rome. What do we need to do? Well, do we know anyone who is in a position of influence that maybe we can start with them and, and maybe we can have like a Bible study with them and from them maybe we can see some things happen. Maybe we can do some things with the poor. Maybe we can hand out food or we can provide clothing and that would give us a platform for, for gospel ministry or they, they would kind of come up with things like that. I don't think anyone would have sit down and say, hey, Paul, how about you get arrested and you're in jail for four to five years, and we'll see how that goes, and maybe through that, the gospel can spread. See, this is is not man's thinking. This is God's thinking. This is God's plan. This is his agenda. This is his advancement. So friends, who do you rub shoulders with day after day? Who is regularly watching your life and listening to your talk? who over time is going to ask questions because of what comes out of your mouth and how you respond to difficult circumstances. Maybe the question is this, do you believe that God can advance the gospel through your difficult circumstances in ways that you might not comprehend? Do you believe it? You may not see it, but do you believe that God is at work? Do you believe that your situation, your circumstance is the very platform from which God advances his gospel? That's what he's doing here. And he's doing it among unbelievers. And what does it say there? Verse 13, so that it became known throughout the whole world imperial guard and to all the rest. We're not exactly sure what that means, but I think the picture here is this, that as the imperial guard was infected with the gospel, when Paul preached the gospel, when Paul taught the gospel, they would talk about it amongst themselves, but they would take that out to the other imperial guards, and it would just spread. This is what happens, friends, with the gospel. It goes out. It spreads. It catches. It catches. That's the first thing. Clarity to believe the gospel. Secondly, confidence to proclaim the gospel. Confidence to proclaim the gospel. Verse 14, and most of the believers, not all of them, but most of them, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now, at first glance, you might think that Paul here is talking about brothers who are fellow preachers. But his words here are not limited to those who are preaching. This is a statement about individual Christians. These are brothers. These are individuals now who are, have confidence to be more bold. So all over Rome, Christians are now beginning to speak openly and boldly about Jesus. Why? Because the Apostle Paul is in prison. And his imprisonment has affected them in such a way that they're going to step up and they're going to speak. Friends, this is what happens when persecution comes. Confidence and boldness rise up without fear. To do what? To speak the words of Christ without fear. I know that in my life, I've been emboldened by the example of many of the reformers who gave up their lives ultimately through martyrdom, because they were preaching the true gospel boldly and believing and praying that it would impact people and give them new life. They were willing to die for their faith. Men like Thomas Ridley and Hugh Latimer, who were both burned at the stake for their beliefs. Or a man like William Tyndale, who worked so hard to translate and print the word of God in the English language, only to die a martyr for his faith. One of my more recent heroes is a man by the name of Charles Simeon from which we do the Charles Simeon Trust who served as the, the vicar, the pastor of Holy Trinity Church in Cambridge, England. Now, some of you know the story, but it's, it's very compelling to me, but it fits in here. I'm not only... Uh, moved by him because of his approach to the word of God. I'm also moved by him because of his, his example of endurance and suffering and boldness as he preached to a mostly rebellious and hostile church. When he arrived at Holy Trinity, the people there did not want him as their pastor. So in protest, they locked the pews back in those days in those locations, pews, had doors, and typically families sat in those pews. They locked their pews, and they wouldn't let anyone else sit in the pews. So anyone that was coming to church would have to stand in the aisle. And So people would come and stand, and then he would come out, he would put chairs out, and the church wardens, which would be like kind of like what Alex is doing, Alex Lopes does there. He's kind of like the head church bouncer, so to speak, right? He comes in, and he takes the chairs, and they would throw them out into the churchyard. You're not going to put these chairs up. So the people are against him, the church workers are against him, they're opposing what he's doing, but week after week after week, he prepares a sermon, he stands up and he proclaims the gospel. And people are still there, some are in rebellion, some are there, they're not part of the original crowd, there are students that were there too that would come eventually. For 10 years he had to endure this. Now friends, as a pastor, that would not be my choice. But his example stirs me up to say, I am willing to face hardship, and I'm going, willing to endure opposition. I'm willing to, to proclaim the gospel faithfully and passionately. His persecution stimulates me to want to be a better pastor. And in the same way, here in Rome, Paul's persecution is stimulating those who are believers, many of them, to be encouraged and confident and bold to proclaim the truth of the gospel. So friends, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, the enemies of the gospel, think that they have the upper hand by having Paul imprisoned in Jerusalem, and then Caesarea, and then ultimately in Rome, not realizing that God is completely in control. And what they think is victory is actually gospel advance. That's powerful, friends. Although Paul may be in chains, the gospel remains unchanged. That's why Luke ends his account in Acts the way he did, just as we saw. So the truth is revealed, the truth is illustrated, but now the truth is applied. Paul seeks to apply this truth now by connecting his own experience of envy and rivalry in Rome, to the rivalry and jealousy that the Philippian church is experiencing as they seek to engage in gospel ministry. just turn over to chapter two of the book of Philippians and notice verse three and following. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. He's speaking there into a situation where there is selfish ambition, where there is conceit, where there is rivalry, where there is envy. So he's modeling for them something that they need to take and apply in their context. So Paul says now in verse 15 through 18, these words, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here For the defense of the gospel, the former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Now, friends, this is is a hard text. (laughs) What I mean by that, it's a hard text to receive, and to embrace. Let me try to illustrate what Paul is saying by using a more modern situation. Imagine that you are a trained and credentialed fitness expert and you've developed a unique program that helps people to effectively lose weight and maintain a healthy lifestyle. Your program involves maintaining a special diet, a special kind of exercise, and a special supplement that you have discovered and created. This program is your passion and your driving mission in life. And your mission statement is to help people heal and build a healthy lifestyle. And as you develop this program, you have a best friend who came alongside you, and you ask him to come along and to be a part of what you're doing in establishing a clinic where people can, can can follow this program and lose weight and have a healthy lifestyle. And so that that friend comes in, and he's good because he's an administrator. He does all the things that are going to help complement you in the business. And since the start of that partnership, the clinic has seen steady growth with many people effectively losing weight and living healthier lives. And it gives you great joy to know that your efforts are having such an impact on so many people. But what you don't know is that during the fifth year your friend and partner in this business has been secretly working behind the scenes to set up his own clinic and without your knowledge your partner has stolen your intellectual property that includes your proven formula for your supplement along with your program and he's claimed it as his own and in doing so he's taken many of your clients with him and now six months later your partner, old partner I should say, his clinic is two times the size your clinic has ever been. Now what he did was underhanded, it was disrespectful, it was despicable, it was relationally heartbreaking, but even so, this clinic, or through this clinic, he is now helping twice as many people effectively lose weight and maintain a healthy lifestyle. And so despite his unethical behavior and desiring to be true to your mission statement, you're rejoicing that more people are losing weight and building a healthy lifestyle. Ultimately, it's not about who helps the people, but that the people are being helped. You you understand the tension that's happening in that story, that illustration. Because what our natural reaction is is to get angry with that former partner, right? That would be the the emotion that would come out of this typically. He's been such a jerk. He's a despicable person. And you would be right. But you could be tempted to channel all of your energy and attention and anger toward your former partner. He needs to be made accountable for what he has done. But if you're truly committed to your mission statement, and you are rejoicing because people are being helped to lose weight and to live a healthy lifestyle. Hopefully this kind of helps you enter into this passage a little bit more. So let's put all this together, verses 15 through 17, just through a chart that might help us understand what's going on. We have Paul's friends. They preach Christ. How? What are their motives? From goodwill, out of love. And they do it knowing that I am put in prison for the defense of the gospel. And so they're preaching in truth. Then you have those who are Paul's rivals. They preach Christ from envy and rivalry. Rivalry speaks of wanting to prevent a rival getting something. I don't want you to have that. I don't want you to have that blessing. I don't want you to have that growth, right? Envy speaks of wanting to get that something for yourself. I want to have that. I want to have that growth. And the word pretense is a word that speaks up, has a picture of a cover, a mask, and speaks of doing something for selfish motives. Paul's friends are marked by goodwill and love. Those who are his rivals are marked by rivalry and envy and pretense. Now, friends, it's understandable how this might have happened, isn't it? We know from Paul's letters, in particular his letter to Rome, that the church was actually doing well. And so I'm sure that there's a pastor in Rome who is thinking to himself, you know, I don't know why Paul had to go to Jerusalem. That was really a dumb move on his part. He should have known better. He knew that the Jews would rise up against him. And and when he was arrested before Felix and Festus, all he needed to do was to let them know that he wasn't there to cause trouble and he would have been released. But no, Paul didn't do that. He's such a hothead, and now he's in Rome, and he's drawing unnecessary attention to the Christians in the city. He doesn't see how his imprisonment is hindering the spread of the gospel. Or maybe another pastor is thinking, I really appreciated the fact that Paul has been used by God to take the gospel to so many places. It's been incredible. But doesn't he see that his time is up? Doesn't he know that there are good and faithful pastors already in Rome? Why did he have to come here and interfere with what the church is already doing in this region? It's rather selfish of him, don't you think? See, these are are things that, that, that people think because Paul now, with all his gifts, with all, I want to say his celebrity status, comes into Rome. And his presence stirs up Feelings of envy and rivalry. And these may not be things that have been said. These may just be things that are in the heart of these pastors. But, it says here, when they speak the gospel, they're not doing it from good motives. They're actually trying to harm Paul. And friends, we must be sure here to note that these men are preaching a true gospel these are not false teachers. These are not heretics. If they were, Paul would have treated them differently or dealt with it differently. These are true Christian preachers who are preaching a true Christian gospel, but from impure motives. So they were not anti Christian, they were anti Paul. What Paul is saying is that there is a bigger perspective that overrides even sinful motivations of Christian preachers. And that motivation is that Christ would be proclaimed. See, friends, that means that we have to do some wrestling in our hearts, doesn't it? And Paul had to do wrestling in his hearts. He could have got angry. He could be upset with what these guys are doing. But he's saying, look, I'm not going to get upset with them. I am rejoicing that even through that motivational Uh, or bad motivational heart preaching, the gospel is going forward and people are getting saved. That's the goal. That's the agenda. That's the joy. Now friends, Paul is not ignoring the sinfulness of his rival preachers. He's identifying them, isn't he? He's saying it's rivalry. It's envy. It's pretense. But he's more concerned about the gospel going forward. Paul's point here is that when we have the mind of Christ, when we see our circumstances through Christ, a Christ-centered lens, we can see the bigger picture of gospel advancement. The gospel goes forward in spite of man's sinfulness. Now, I'm sure that if Paul had the opportunity to sit down and talk with one of these pastors, he would have set them straight. Paul was bold in that way. And this doesn't mean then just ignore churches or movements that are really bad theology and that kind of stuff. But it does mean rejoice. If even through that bad theology or that bad Uh, that bad circumstance or that bad movement, if the gospel is being preached, that people are getting saved. Rejoice in that. But that doesn't legitimize the individual as being okay. It means that you're saying God is at work in spite of man's sinfulness. I want to bring things together here with some concluding thoughts. I have three of them. We began this morning considering Paul's argument. Rejoice. Because your difficult circumstances serve to advance the Gospels. Three questions I want to ask you this morning. Number one, how does that truth change your perspective of your own circumstances and trials? With this in mind, we can see that our hospital bed is a pulpit and that the hospital is our mission field. We can see that our cubicle at work is a pulpit and the company we work in is our mission field. We can see that our student desk at school is a pulpit and our school is our mission field. We can see that our house or apartment is a pulpit and our neighborhood is our mission field. We can see that our prison cell is a pulpit and the prison is our mission field. It changes our perspective on our own circumstances and trials. I know a man who sat under my ministry at the Master's College whose past life caught up with him. And he was arrested and tried and sentenced to many years in prison. But having come to faith in Christ, as difficult as it was to enter into the prison, he determined that he would be a light for the gospel among the prisoners and the guards that he would encounter. And every few months, I'll get a note from him, a card, he's been faithful to remember, and he shares sometimes a little bit of the things that he's been able to do and the Bible studies he's involved in. And I remember early on, he was in solitary confinement, and he just shared with me that he had opportunity to share the gospel with his guard and, and things like that. It's just his perspective was mind of Christ, gospel-centered. I'm in this situation. I deserve to be here because I did commit the crime. It was before Christ, but now I'm one of his children. This now is going to be my pulpit, and this prison is now going to be my mission field. Question number two. How does this change your perspective of man's opposition to Christianity? Although man may shake his fist at God by taking it out on the followers of Christ, our sovereign God is always at work for gospel advancement. And Be certain of it and keep living out your life for Christ even when there is great opposition. You know, we can be so overwhelmed by what man is doing. That we lose our perspective that God is actually still at work. Even when enemies are out to stamp out the movement of the gospel. Gospel advance will always take place. Because God is the one who is making it happen number three how does this change your perspective on the power and advance of the gospel it's easy to be discouraged especially when you don't see progress in your efforts to evangelize but in this text Paul reveals to every Christian that they are a part of a mighty spiritual army that is marching forward cutting into enemy territory with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you see yourself that way? I think sometimes we see ourselves as kind of like on the side, this kind of, well, we're kind of scared and afraid of what's going to happen, and we're the church, we're small, all these people are out there, and they're all against us. He's saying, no, the gospel is advancing. It may not be a physical advancement initially, There's a spiritual advance that's taking place. And if you're a child of God, you're a part of that army. You're a part of that machine. You're a part of the the people that God works through to advance that gospel, even in your difficult circumstances, friends. It's a wonderful thing to be reminded of what you're a part of. So Paul is saying, rejoice. Rejoice. That doesn't mean, oh, just, you know, don't worry, be happy. It means root yourself in Christ because he is at work. Have yourself the mind of Christ to see what he's doing. And that's why Paul appeals to the Philippian believers only a few verses later. Look, if you would, at verse 28. Sorry, 27 and 28 of of chapter 1. Here's what he says. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm, military term, in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side, shield wall, advancement, movement taking place for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your Opponents. I will advance the gospel, the Lord says. Paul's trying to drill that home to the Philippian church. And he's trying to drill that home to us, friends. Your circumstances are the platform that God uses for gospel advance. Embrace it. Be thankful for it. Rejoice in it. Let it fuel your responses in your life and your service for him. And be in awe of what God is actually doing in what appears to be an end-of-the-road situation. God is at work accomplishing his purposes. Lord, thank you for your, your kindness to us. Thank you, Lord, for Paul's transparent heart to reveal to us his circumstance of imprisonment and to challenge us, Lord, with our mindset as we look at our circumstances. Lord, we can be so caught up with many things in this world, and we, we, we are because we're trying to be responsible with life. And yet, you want us to have the same heartbeat that Paul had to be concerned about the proclamation of the gospel. To bring that in, in every situation. How is this serving to advance the gospel? Lord, we need to be asking ourselves that question. Give us wisdom and discernment, Lord, as, a, as individuals. Give us wisdom and discernment as a church, to unite together in this incredible gospel war machine to see your gospel advance. Lord, we commit ourselves to you. Give us wisdom now in your name.